Hey there, Numinous Podcast friends and fans. It's that time of year again. You can get three free days in the Numinous Network when you sign up between March 22nd through 24th. If you sign up during that period, you'll get three free days to look inside and try before you buy. We've got self-massage and somatics classes, support sessions for folks with long COVID and sensitive nervous systems due to autoimmunity or disability, plus a BIPOC-only meditation and ancestral veneration session. On top of that, on Saturday, March 23rd, I'm leading my popular half-day workshop, 10 Steps to Trauma-Sensitive Trance Work. It's appropriate for anyone leading meditation or trance journey sessions, or anyone who's considering hypnotherapy as a treatment modality, but isn't sure what to look for in a practitioner. That session will be recorded in case you can't attend live. Sign up for my newsletter to learn all the details about how you can access three free days in March and learn more about the Numinous Network work at carmenspaniola.com. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. Ooh, in for a treat today, my friends. Natalie Russo is here, and we're talking about her relationship to the word witch, how we feel about creativity and self-expression, about feeling stuck, the books we long to write, and the stories we love to hear again and again. I'm not sure when I first met Natalie, but I knew of her for a long time beforehand because we share one of my dearest friends in common, Carolyn Taylor, the wonderful Carolyn Taylor, who we heard from in episode 31, way back in 2014. But then Natalie and I attended a workshop together a few years ago, and we got to have lunch a few times, and that just sealed the deal for me. I've been a great fan and admirer ever since, and I've been a guest teacher in her excellent year-long program called 13 Moons. It's so good. I think if you want to know when it opens again, I think it opens like every Samhain, so like October 31st every year. Anyway, get on our newsletter to be notified when that opens again. I'll link to it in the show notes. Natalie is a woman who wears many hats. She's taught yoga and meditation since 2002. Um, as I said, she's taught her uh, Wheel of the Year program called 13 Moons, and she's currently studying uh, somatic therapy. She lives in Holcomenum Territory, also known as Salt Spring Island, BC. I think she's a great listener. She's an excellent writer. She's a very gentle teacher. And I know you're going to love this conversation between us, these two very like-minded women of great mutual respect. Without further ado, here's Natalie. So Natalie, what identities do you lead with? Hmm. I love this question, and it's also a hard one to answer because there's a part of me that feels constant and a part that feels like it's always in flux. So I would have to say the part of me that, you know, that I lead with that people would recognize and see right away is I lead with the identity of woman, so cisgendered woman, uh, white woman. I'm a woman of mixed European heritage, 
primarily Scottish, French, Welsh. Um, so those are the really prominent identities I think that people would see right away. Um, and then if you got to talk to me, you'd see that I'm a mother and that's definitely an important identity for me. Um, I, I definitely, I think lead with the identity of like a, a seeker. I'm a very curious person. I have always been very curious. So I love to learn like a seeker and student. And I think that comes across even when I meet people because I always have lots of questions. <laughs> I want to <really> <laughs> know and understand people, you know. Um, yeah. And then other identities, you know, I've had lots of different identities at different times based on like what I'm doing. But that, again, is the part that always feels like it's in flux, you know, mm. for uh, and that's felt like it's been in flux for a really long time. There was a time, a brief period of time where I felt like I could say, you know, I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> and that was like it, and it, but then even that fell away. And so, um, you know, I, I really don't have a good answer to that right now what I am. So I, I do often say I'm like, you know, just like your friendly neighborhood witch and that just encompasses all the, <laughs> the stuff that I do. <laughs> but yeah, there's also this part of me that is very much a teacher. You know, I mm -hmm. taught yoga for a long time. I, I teach mindfulness and now I'm shifting into doing somatic counseling work and, and that's different than teaching and yet it still feels like an extension of that work of like supporting and educating and being with others mm. in that way. So I yeah. was sort of wondering for a second there, I was like, not teacher. That's like one of the first <laughs> identities I would think of if somebody huh. said your name. So, okay. So which is an identity that you take on the friendly neighborhood, Witch? I love that. <laughs> what's your relationship with the term, Witch, and what's your yeah. history with that? Mm. I like this. So, the witch as like a character, as an archetype, as a being is something I've always been fascinated with. I really can't remember a time when I wasn't. When I was little, I always wanted to be one of two things on Halloween, a witch or a vampire. That was it. Like, <laughs> and that's like from when I was really, really young. And so it's just this, this archetype that I've always been fascinated by. And then when I was in my late teens, I started to actually realize like, oh, there are like real people who are witches and they get together <laughs> and they practice things. And there's all these different ways of, of being a witch in the world. And so that began a more sort of formal study into different forms of, you know, modern witchcraft. But, you know, still, I think the thing that I love most about the identity of witch or the archetype of the witch is that, that it is not fixed, that there's no one definition in my own idea of what a witch is, of who a witch is, has changed so many times and is constantly changing. And I like that mm -hmm. because I think it is a character that is also always in flux, always shape-shifting. Um, I, I love that the witch to me is, I think of the witch very much as a character who's a bit of like an edge walker, right? Hedge rider, mm -hmm. someone who can, you know, like has one foot in the mundane world and can can interface with society but then another foot in the wilds and and interfaces with different realms that is something I really resonate with and um that really has always intrigued me and for me is something that I've also needed you know I, I really need to have my foot in in different worlds um yeah I think there's so much more I could say but the, that's sort of the first things that come to mind right now 
are there any ancestral pathways that have guided your exploration of witchcraft? Because I, I, the reason I ask that is because I too, you know, as a young child, um, I remember finding an overdue library book when I was like clearing out stuff in my twenties, and it was from when I like it was like from the eighties, so I would have been like nine, and it was like a guide to lucid dreaming. <laughs> Right, and I was like, and and like finding old crystal books and things like that. That I don't know how I came to have these, but but that has changed so much over time. And now for myself, I would consider myself a more of a folk witch and somebody Mm -hmm. who's like drawing Mm -hmm. on um, Scottish Highland ancestry to help me shape what my practice is. That seems to have the most resonance for what I was naturally doing anyway, which maybe some people would call green witchcraft or hedge witchcraft. Mm -hmm. It sort of depends. I, I very much would say kitchen witch. So how would you describe your practice, is it is it fairly eclectic? Yeah, I relate to all those terms that you just use, like hedge witch, kitchen <laughs> witch, folk magic. Like very much I feel that my um my own magical practices, my own personal ritual practices are very I tend I prefer to practice more solitary. And that doesn't mean only because I also deeply value coming together. Uh, with others, I, that sense of good company. And I do practice some ritual with community, but actually prefer a lot of my ritual to be personal and entirely mm-hmm. on my own. But I love being together in community with other witches or people that are curious about working with what I call like earth magic, because I'm very drawn mm-hmm. to the magic of the earth, the rhythms of the seasons, the natural world, and this kind of folk magic that is a lot to do with food and plant medicine, like in the kitchen and the home, like these. And I, I do, though I haven't had, I, I've looked deeply into my ancestry and I've had conversations, I, you know, with some of my, I have one living grandparent, like, and my, on the, my Scottish grandma, like, are there any witches? <laughs> you know, I ask these questions and people kind of look at me like I'm funny and I might haven't got any you know, verification of that, but I don't really need to because I know what people have been doing. And so I just mm-hmm. I feel this more on this instinctive level of kind of tapping into these ways of practicing that to me just feel really innate and instinctive. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, like as a young witch, <laughs> I was really drawn to these, um, you know, different forms of Wicca and things like that. But I found that it was like, for me personally, no disrespect, like too much pageantry and too much, like it just wasn't <laughs> working for me. And mm. yeah, to my, it just feels really more organic. And that feels, mm. and, I, and I noticed, for example, with like the plants and the foods that I work with, they're very much the foods and the plants that my ancestors would have worked with in that mm-hmm. way. So in that mm. way, it does feel connected ancestrally. Mm. Yeah, I really relate to that too. I am a solitary witch, and yet because I'm a teacher, yeah, I do love um, hosting Wheel of the Year rituals mm-hmm. and workshops and events and things like that. But generally speaking, most of my ritual is like I could do it, and nobody would really know that that's what I was doing. Except, of course, you know, I have altars everywhere and yeah, offerings that go out. That's sort of noticeable when you're in the backyard. People are like, what is that <laughs> statuary on that tree or whatever? But but mostly it's like yeah, pretty quiet um, and prayerful and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds, it sounds like we both share 
at least this piece in common too of like it, it is sort of a creative, organic, um, emergent property. This relationship between like myself and the food or myself and the plant and what's happening in that season or what lunation we're in. And it just feels like I'm in relationship and I'm just supposed to be doing this thing. And to me, that's very co-creative. It sounds like maybe you have a similar kind of vibe going on. Am I getting that? Yes. Oh my gosh. Totally. I love that you said like creative, co-creative and emergent. That's exactly how I feel. And, um, And that's something that when I am sharing these ideas with other people, I'm always really clear, like, no, I don't teach witchcraft. I don't teach you how to be a witch. I don't believe anyone can teach you how to be a witch, but I like to share ideas and inspiration and things like that. And then I'm really trying to get that idea across that like the rituals that you create organically from that emergent space of just tuning into what's true for you in this moment, inside of your body, inside of your heart, and how that's relating to the, the movement of the the planets or the stars or the the landscape around your home, the other beings you're interacting with, what emerges from that will be the most powerful ritual. And you're not going to find that in a book. And I can't <laughs> give you a recipe for that. And yet I can give you ideas of things that how I work. And I know that that can be really helpful because certainly I learned a lot of things from just hearing how other people do things and for then sure. being willing to just try things out. And I think that's the thing, just being willing to trust your own process. But the it, the creative part is huge. I actually think that that's what spellcraft ritual work is. It's a creative process, hands mm-hmm. down. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Would you, I want to talk about creativity and self-expression, but before that, I, I have this thing that seems very clear and obvious to me, but as a, I'd like to test this with you as a fellow witch. Okay. All right. So all witches are animists, but not all animists are witches. <laughs> I mean, so would I, you say you're an animist? A- absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. This seems yeah. like this is sort of Socratic reasoning to me that I'm like, you know, I'm not wrong about this, right? But by def- if you are a witch, by definition, you have to be an animist. How could you possibly think you're in relationship and not believe in the ensoulment of yeah. whatever it is you're so? So you think my logic's I'm like right there with you. Yeah, absolutely. I don't don't understand how you could be a witch and not be an animist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think that in 10 years or so, what we see now is sort of like an Instagram witch trend is going to deepen. I actually even said this to my publisher as I was sort of pitching my book. was like, in 10 years, we'll be calling it animism, Mm -hmm. which is really what it is. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the foundational piece. And it um, is. And not every animist would say they're a witch, but certainly if you're a which I, I don't know how you wouldn't be talking in animistic yeah. terms and declare that. Okay. Thank you yeah. for no, I'm with validating. You. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. And it's also so, hard for me to imagine like the term witch is like, it's, a, it's such a fun thing to play with, but really animist is what makes the most sense to me. And it's hard for me also to imagine an animist who isn't a witch, even if they don't identify as that. I'm like, oh, you're interesting. witch. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Interesting. I guess I'm thinking about like an indigenous person like Lekwungen speaker mm. might not consider themselves a witch because they're no. like, that's some like white European thing. Absolutely. Whereas they would be, be, we would be doing similar things. We'd be doing trance journey. We'd be like propitiating our spirit friends. We'd be doing all that same stuff, but I could see them being like, 
bitch, I'm not a witch. Do you know exactly. what I totally agree. Like, right, that's this term that has a lot of resonance often yes. for us, like women of European ancestry. Like it has a, means a lot. And to other people from other cultures, it can be a straight up insult or totally. a, da- a dangerous thing to say, or just like mm-hmm. completely they're not going to identify with it, even though our practices may look very much the same. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Totally with you. Okay. So creativity and self-expression, this is like Mm. very much up for me as Mm. my book comes out, I'm approaching more visibility and as a creative person, like having to identify as a creative person, I'm like, I don't really see myself that way. And yet I think I have to admit that it takes a certain um, passion for self-expression and creativity to put a a large work out into the world. When I look at you though, I'm like, oh, Natalie is a creative person and like is very self-expressed and in like a almost like introverted, like you said, like solitary hedge witch kind of way. I see you as a very creative teacher and a very, um, you know, a space holder who's like supporting other people to be more self-expressed. So (laughs) I'm curious for you, what was like a key junction for you in your self-expression and, um, and, and your creativity and how you share it with the world? Oh, I love this question. First, I just have to say, it's so amazing how we see ourselves versus how we see others. Cause I think you're one of like the most wildly creative women <laughs> out there, like just unbelievably creative. And so it's just interesting for me to hear about that little bit of, I, I can imagine it, right. Putting out a book, a major publication, like that's, that's huge. That's like such a big creative project. So I'm hearing what you're working yeah. with, but I yeah. feel confronted by the yeah. idea of being <laughs> creative yeah, instead of which... kind of like quietly puttering on my thing. But yeah. I'm like, no, I, it is creativity and it is self-expression. And so oh I'm, like, goodness. this is why I'm trying to connect with other people, particularly mm-hmm. in the podcast and the weeks leading up to it, almost maybe to like gird myself, <laughs> like strengthen to be like, right, these are really creative people and everybody does it in their own way. And everybody has had to confront their personal boxes and limitations and and so I'm curious yeah. how it's been for you to yeah. grapple with self-expression and creativity. I love this. I love this. So, I, I mean, similar to you and probably a lot of the people that you'll interview, like I, that idea of like being a creative person and being comfortable with self-expression, that's something I've come to. It didn't, uh, I think that I, I'm going to, if I walk it back, I think when I was very young, that was very natural to me. And I actually have found pictures of me before I was six years old, where I was being like full of expression. And I just remember as an, uh, you know, in my early twenties, looking at that child and being like, who is that? Because Mm -hmm. I could not identify with that person anymore because I went through a long period of my life where I was very, very shy in a way and just really not comfortable expressing myself publicly in any way and felt really disconnected from my creative or artistic mm-hmm. side. So it's been a journey of reclaiming that. Um, and part of that came through, through my teaching work. As I, as I went into teaching work, um, my creativity just naturally started to come into it as I got more comfortable with teaching. Mm-hmm. 
And over time, I was able to like feel that part of myself just sort of filling in again. And then, mm. uh, you know, it's only been in the last few years that I've really been able to look at myself and be like, I actually, I can really own like the ways in which I am creative. I do not identify as an artist. And yet the archetype of the artist, the way that an artist lives and sees the world and their life, I relate, I resonate with that a lot. So I guess I say I don't identify as an artist because in our society, it seems people who are artists are people who are making a living with art. And I don't relate to that. And yet my whole life is a creative process. Like I really can see mm -hmm. that. Like I, I live my life in a very creative way. And I certainly relate to my work in a creative way. And that on that topic of self-expression, gosh, that's such a big one such a journey. <laughs> and, and I have to say that right now, if I was really honest, I'm feeling really sort of stuck in my self-expression. I think because the last few years of my life, uh, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes, a lot of personal challenge in my family, a lot of really painful, difficult experiences, holding space for others who are going through crisis and then the pandemic. <laughs> and then, you know, I got divorced just a year ago and transition and, and also going through a lot of transition in my work and being in a student phase again, um, studying somatic counseling. And so there's, there's a part of my voice that actually feels really stuck right now. There's a mm. lot of things I want to express. There's a lot of things I want to speak to. There's a lot of writing I want to do that does not feel ripe yet. And so mm. I feel a bit like uh, there's so much inside and yet it's not, I'm not quite at that place where I can express it fully. And that's mm. a bit feeling, uh, I'm, 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 I'm pretty used to being in, in between liminal transition states. So I, I know like that's where I am and I can hang out here, but it's been mm. a number of years. I'm like, Oh God, I'm starting to feel like, <laughs> like when am I going to bust through? So there's, yeah, so I'm in an interesting phase um, mm. and I'm feeling, yeah, like it's harder to access that, my full voice. Thank you for admitting that, you know, that's like, I think one of the um, trappings of like capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy, that it's like, we're never supposed to say, I feel stuck or I feel um, unripe. You know, I feel like it's been going on a while, you know, so mm. it's really refreshing to hear that and super relatable, right? Mm. Where it's like, I don't, people keep asking, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said I have four or five other titles I want to do. And right now I'm like, nothing, yeah. <laughs> nothing, I have nothing else. Um, I, I need to wait and see what happens. I need to wait yeah. and see what happens. I'm not sure how I'll feel. So I get that. Um, feeling of of like something that is nascent and feeling not quite ready, and it's it's sort of a different place to be, you know, for me as a as a teacher as well. Of like, what, mm -hmm. I'm used to being pretty generative and pretty excited, and and it seems like you are too, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm creating this program, I'm doing this thing. This feels really um, relevant, and then there's this sort of fallow period. Yes, and it's like okay. All right. So when and where do you feel most creative? Okay. So we know fallow periods mm. are okay. Yeah. But get, when is it juicy? Like what are the conditions that create a good context for your creativity to flow? Ah, such a good question. So 
first of all, I have to be lit up and inspired. Like I need like inspiration, like a hummingbird needs sugar water. Like I need to be learning and, and at some kind of evolving edge with what I'm studying or exploring. And that usually needs to be really like alive in my life, not just intellectual curiosity. So when those things come together, but also I will say, uh, you know, I also have to be feeling like safe and well-regulated in my life. And I think that's part of it. There's been a, I'm in this, I've been in a longer fallow period to a degree um, because of like a lot of questioning and disillusionment for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And, and then in the last few years, as I mentioned, there was a lot going on that I had to attend to um, in my family and then in, in myself, some deeper integration work. And so you know, being very gentle with that, I can see like, it's really hard to be generative and creative Mm -hmm. and to express when you're not feeling entirely safe in your life, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in yourself, uh, not entirely regulated (laughs) because Mm -hmm. of going through things. And so for me, I think that's really important. I have, there has to be a certain amount of like embodied ease for me to be Mm -hmm. truly creative. Um, and, and then that along with being fed and nourished at the level of the mind and the soul. But when those things come together, like you, I can be unbelievably generative. Like just like, oh, I can't keep up with all the ideas that I want to put into the <laughs> action. Yeah. Wow. Embodied ease. Like did it, I feel like everybody right then, <laughs> if you didn't Aww. like feel it, it was like, oh, I could imagine mm-hmm. what that would feel like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's like a, a memory of a thing that it's like, oh yeah, that was really good. Thank you for sharing. Hmm. So what's the scariest part of the creative process for you? Hmm. Well, okay. I'll be honest here that there's a certain, this is another thing where I'm challenging myself, hopefully in the next, this next chapter of my life is I recognize that there's a certain level of the creative process where when I'm in that teacher role is very comfortable for me. That's where I've been for the last couple of decades. So I can create from that space. And when I'm in that role, quite comfortably, whereas writing, for example, like what you've just done, published a book, this is something I've always wanted to do. And I once was sitting with uh, a friend, a dear friend, and I heard myself say, like, no matter how successful I get at anything else I do, if I don't, write, I will never feel successful. And it was really interesting because that's the one thing I've wanted to do since as long as I can remember. Um, And yet there's something, again, that's in the way, like my voice, there's things that there's, I'm recognizing it might be something I come to much later in my life because there's a Mm -hmm. lot of other stuff that needs to be cleared out. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's part, I have to, whenever I step into writing, not from the teacher's voice, I can't believe how vulnerable and scary it is for me. So I'm going to just be really honest here and say that mm-hmm. that to me is definitely an edge for me. I like um, stepping into like more creative writing. Um, yeah. yeah. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, that sounds really scary. Yeah, that is something I can totally relate to. I've never really even thought of that before. I never wanted to write a book. Like I wasn't one of those people who was like, I'm going to write a book one day. It was definitely the teacher archetype was like, mm-hmm. okay, I need to just like encapsulate this mm-hmm. stuff so I can like build on it. And then I can get to that 
more edgier stuff, you know, like a little bit more, we're synthesizing more themes here, but I needed my first sort of like normie mainstream, mainstream ish kind of thing. And totally am like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I would never identify as a writer author. Yes. I'll have been published, but you will never hear me say I'm a writer Mm. ever. I'm like claiming that I'm like throwing it down right now because what you're describing is sounds terrifying. Do you even know kind of like the genre that you're curious? Like you, well, I still want to ask you a question right now. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so I want to answer it. I so relate to what you're saying, and I've often thought too that maybe my first book because I've been approached with some of my work. People have been like, "This is this is a book. Just put it together. It's a book." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, I could do that." But when I have the time, I should do that because it would be easy. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that would like break the ice and then I could like get to the other stuff that I want to say. So I really, really, so I just kind of want to ask you that, like, what is there, what would you want to write? What would be the edgier stuff you would want to write if you were to share? (laughs) I'm so. I will tell you, I, I really want to write a book about collapse, but I'm not an energy analyst. I'm not a finance analyst. I'm not, you know, 30 years deep in the environmental education field. I don't feel like I have the, I don't have the credibility or the authority or any of those things. I have a kind of philosophy that my husband and I have co-created that is like, here's like basically nine collapse skills that would be helpful. And here's how I think collapse is is sort of going to look. And this is why I've done the trainings I have. This is why I pursue the spirituality that I do. These are, you know, I would like to write that book, but I can't not imagine how um, inadequate I would feel because the, because I've interviewed people who should who write collapse books, you know. But it is sort of similar. Like I I know real writers who win <laughs> awards and who you know that kind of thing. So so it's the same kind of thing where I'm like, no, I know real. Um, collapsitarians. I know real energy analysts. So th- I have no business writing a kind of normie mainstream book about collapse. But And so that would make me feel incredibly self-conscious mm. and inadequate. And like, I, I, and so I, I'd, I'd really have to, um, I'd have to shape that in a certain kind of way. This is where my love of marketing would come in, where I'd be like, well, let's be clear. This is the the yeah. perspective I'm writing from, but I, I can imagine a lot of very personal inner demons about, um, you know, being a sham and, uh, totally. and, and not even understanding the problem. Who am I to write about it you know but if I put on the teacher hat I'm kind of like I think I could be helpful (laughs) I agree and like I would love to read that book I I know that (laughs) this is a conversation that you and Ruben have had a lot and that you've put time and energy into learning things and I would want to read that book I'd probably enjoy it more than reading a book by an expert on (laughs) (laughs) so I guess I yeah so Thank you. So tell me what you, what's your thing? Yeah. Like 
it's funny because when I was younger, I loved to write poetry and nonfiction. And that just seems like it totally dried up once I became mm. a teenager, which is so sad to me. And I always wonder when that will come back, if it will. Mm. Um, there's been little whispers of it in the last few years. But mm. like I have, I have an idea for a nonfiction book <laughs> that is like, kind of like historical fiction <laughs> about mm. women. In yeah, anyway, uh, mm. that. But also, there's a lot of memoir writing that I feel really mm. called to write, just because I feel I love memoir as a genre. Mm -hmm. I love, love, love it, and um, I would want to read your memoir. You would <laughs> There's yeah, I'm like, just, yeah, yeah, I would want there's to stories it. I feel like I just want to share. And I, I think I need to just, I think what I should probably do is like take a memoir writing course and like just start mm -hmm. writing it for myself just to get mm -hmm. it out. Because I think that's part of it that's blocking my voice is that there's all these stories that need to be told and I'm not getting them out. And I think mm -hmm. if I just got them out and didn't worry about getting it out for other people. And there's right. a lot of fear around it because of course, and I think, this is a big thing for anyone considering memoir is like, this is my story, but it also intersects with all these other people's stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm very cautious of that and conscious of it, that my family's stories are not mine to tell. And yet how do you tell yes. your part? Like this was my experience of mm -hmm. these relationships and this, you know, uh, what it was yeah. like to grow up in this family and, um, and not, you know, to be honest, but also not, so I'm always like, I'll just wait till everyone's dead. <laughs> but I could also, I'm like, I want to, I, I want to read the book where you're talking about your, what it was like when you were growing up and then also what it's like for you as a mother. Yeah. Like I, in like contrast, you know, like I just following the threads, hmm. doing it differently. I don't know. Is it again, like, is this another middle-aged menopausal woman episode I don't know this wasn't the plan but it's kind of like I do want to hear the stories of women who yeah. are in between and who are um you know holding the middle position mm. you know thank between you. generations so I would totally read your story thank you that that yeah. helps me and yeah and I agree <laughs> I do too I'm I'm fascinated by those same stories and mm. and I think they're valuable and yeah midlife to me you know I'm 47 and this has just been such a fascinating chapter. I just, I feel like I was born for midlife. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it Me was all too. for this. Yeah. Well, I actually think I was born to be a crone. I'm like yeah. so sad I don't have silver hair and I'm like so excited about aging and menopause. I'm like, yeah. Oh. Like I, so I, I totally feel that way too. So there should be more memoir and stories of this particular really awesome age, you know, really awesome period. Yeah, it's just yeah. such a neat time because you have the weight of experience. You can mm -hmm. look back and you can track the patterns. And <laughs> there's, a, there's a certain like clarity that comes, but also there's like such a- There's point. still a lot of shit happening. There's though. a <laughs> lot of, there's so much shit happening. Like there's so much that comes up for review at this time. I feel like <laughs> midlife, that's what it's about. It's like everything needs to be integrated now, right? Yes. And, yes. and so it's, it's very- potent. There's a lot of mm -hmm. underworld work that has to happen. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's this great humbling and it's very poignant and mm -hmm. God, it's gorgeous. And so I, I'm also totally. wanting to hear more about people navigating this time of life and 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's, it's you mentioned underworld journey, mm. and you, what we're talking about is the shift from relating to Persephone to relating to Demeter, or yeah. like recognizing Demeter and then shifting to like, oh yeah, Hecate, she was in there mm-hmm. too, you know. Mm-hmm. And and um, I'm curious if there are any deities mm. or allies or myths or stories that have been with you at this stage oh, of life, this midlife period. Who who's like who's in your pantheon? Oh gosh, that's such a big question. Like I have story, I would say has like, I heard a friend recently say, I think story saved my life. And that phrase mm-hmm. just really got me because I was like, absolutely story has mm-hmm. saved my life. I uh, feel really blessed that both my parents were avid readers and they mm-hmm. taught me how to read young and they read to me and story was my salvation. Like I was very much that disassociative kid with my head in a book. And mm-hmm. thank God, because those archetypes, those characters are what I would call on when I was struggling and I had to leave home when I was very, very young. 15 Mm -hmm. is too young to be out on your own, but it was safer for me to be out than in Mm -hmm. the home I was in. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I just called on those characters to give me a sense of like inspiration or strength. So there's so many stories that have been part of my life and, and so many deities, a deity practice is something I came to later and I fell madly in love with, um, Hindu deities, because of my deep steeping in the yogic traditions, they felt very alive for me. And I'm so grateful for those deities that walked with me for many years. Um, and I have to say that at this moment, I have many different deities that I that I work with more on an archetypal level now, like I can feel their presence at certain times. But I have to say that it's more the as I turn towards working with my ancestors, that has felt like the strongest presence. And when I made that more conscious and started relating to them directly, I was able to realize how they've always been there. They've always, Mm -hmm. always been there guiding me and supporting me and sometimes stepping in really boldly and like Mm -hmm. (laughs) making sure that certain things happen. You know, I'm just like, whoa, you guys are like, (laughs) wow. On it. You're on it. And so, um, yeah, like my, I have to say that I, I call on and lean on and work with my ancestors as more than I do with deities in this moment, though deities on an archetypal level are always there. Stories, I will say that the story I've been working with the most actively for the last number of years is actually the story of the Odyssey. It's a story that I really, really love. It's, you know, it can be problematic in so many ways and it's also so profound. And in this last year in particular, like I identify with the main theme of the Odyssey, which is the journey of homecoming. Like I feel like all my life I've been on a journey of homecoming and this concept of like of nostos, which means like a, a home a homeward journey, but also the longing for home, the ache for mm-hmm. home. Like when, when I said embodied ease and you said, you know, maybe some of us remember that. That's what mm-hmm. I feel like all my life I've been aching or longing for this sense of, of home, which is to me is safety, embodied safety and ease and refuge. And so that story, when I look at it through that frame, it just, it really speaks to me. And there's so many scenes in it. And in this last year, you know, going through a divorce after 17 years of partnership and and really the most secure relating I'd ever had in my life. That was really challenging to go through that, Mm -hmm. to suddenly find myself like 
out on the open sea again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would, I would have these scenes from this myth that I know so well come to me and I would know I could locate myself in the story. And so mm. I can locate myself in my own narrative and be like, okay, mm. this is where I am. It's a really, it's a pretty intense scene, but mm-hmm. it's going to be okay. And I, I, as I worked with that over the last year, it was amazing for me. I'd keep going back into the myth mm-hmm. in, in somatic work. And I would realize, oh yeah, I'm not there. Like I was, I was like on the sea clinging to my broken raft, but now I've like, found that that river that took me into a gentle shore and now I'm sleeping on the shore and now here's the here's the the people that are gonna uh, welcome me and give me shelter I'm not home yet but I'm in a safer place mm. like, so so yeah that story I have to say has been the one that has really been with me and you go through the cycle of um, the Odyssey every year don't you is yeah, that a winter time pastime I do. I've been for the last few years. I do it in February. I go through it with a group of people over five weeks. And that's what's so fascinating to me is this is a story that is really alive for me. I've read it so many times and listened to it. Um, when I tell it and then we, I'll tell, do an hour of storytelling and then people will have time for reflection and then people will bring forth what they heard, what they felt. And it blows me away what I have gotten how much richness I've gotten out of that story every time I tell it by hearing how it landed for other people. And it's amazing how much those, like the psychological themes in that story just land for everyone, whether they've heard the story before or not. And many people haven't. And it's just amazing how it lands. So yeah, I really enjoy that. I love, I love working with story. It's really powerful. How do you personally then overcome the problematic parts of that particular story? And I'm curious, do you identify with Ulysses? Is that your character or is there other aspects or? Like the character of Odysseus as this kind of mercurial character, there's a part of me that can identify with that. I have a moon in Gemini. I have my Venus in Virgo. So there's that like mercurial part I can kind of connect with. Um, but obviously, yeah, there's some really problematic parts of this story because ancient Greek mythology is just really, there's some stuff that's challenging. And so I try yeah. to walk that line of like not totally reinterpreting the story um, and being true to the story, but also like when I tell it, I try to tell it as it is, but then it's hard for me not to like put certain emphasis on certain characters right. and to kind of portray them in a certain way. But yeah, all in all, I look at, I, I kind of do look at it through that frame of like every character in the story is an aspect of right. parts of myself that I can relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, no, I don't, I, I identify with Odysseus in his role in that story as someone who's journeying home and, and I, I see him as a character in midlife, you know, like he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of after the great heroic, you know, after the heroic moment, you know, after the mm-hmm. battle at Troy, he's, you know, done the great big thing that earned him his fame. But then what? Then he has to face failure and disappointment and um, all sorts of things, you know, setbacks. And that to me is really interesting. Like what mm-hmm. happens to someone after that peak moment, <laughs> you know, right. how do they make okay, sense? Okay, so it's Odysseus. And his queen is Penelope, is that right? Yes, his wife is Penelope, and she's been waiting at home for him, and he ends up being gone for a very, very, very long time. And she has all these 
dudes coming yeah. and she's weaving every night and saying, I'll choose a husband after I finish my weaving. So she undoes her weaving every night. And so we can see her on the one hand is perhaps being clever, but ha- perhaps on the other hand, being like a little bit kind of like, get your shit together, like <laughs> make it, you know, like own your thing. Like, so how do you, how do you shape or how do you relate to Penelope? Oh God, I love Penelope. So first of all, I think the women in this story are the most fascinating. Like the, 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 I mean, it's interesting because in one way you can say the women, especially when it's translated by certain authors, are seen through this incredibly patriarchal view. You know, they're all like dangerous in some way. And even Penelope is like, mm, she's shrewd. They often say, so it's often <laughs> right. really, un- but then when you actually read it and like they really get into it, like, these women are fascinating, right? Like every woman in that story is deeply fascinating. Helen of Troy and Penelope and Circe and um, Calypso, and they get so much airtime. So I'm just like, my God, this is a story about, and they all have something to offer to the the main characters. Because in one way, the story is about Odysseus. It's also a story about his son, Telemachus, who's coming of age, and the way that he and they're being supported by all these and met and challenged by all these fascinating mm-hmm. women. And even the main goddess in it is Athena, who's helping out. Like, so I, the women are just, they, they take the show, I think. You know, these right. guys are just, there have been retail. Yes. Are you familiar? There's like a more a feminist scholar, I think, rewrote it uh, or it did a new translation. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. Do you know it offhand? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I have it on my shelf. What's her name? I can't remember right now, but yes. Yeah, and that's, I definitely recommend for anyone who's into these old myths, like read many, many translations. And Mm. yeah, it's bad that I can't remember her name right now, but apparently she's- We'll put it in show notes. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's excellent. And of course, Margaret Atwood's The Penelope Ad, you got to read that. Mm -hmm. And then um, Margaret, what is it? Circe, the one who wrote Circe. Oh, yes. Miller. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. I love her work. So I I love reading everything and then you put the story together, you know, Mm -hmm. but I like, Mm -hmm. um, so. so I'll have to take it with you because the last time I read The Odyssey, I was traveling by myself, 17 years old in Europe, very much identifying with this middle-aged dude. It's so, it's funny how much poetry and things, you know, I remember reading Ozymandias and like relating to that and looking back now, I'm like, I was a child. Why did I think I was so, why was I so old before my time and relating to these like epic figures who've been through so much? Anyway, it's good to go back and revisit these things. Thank you. Yeah. I'm very excited to do it this year. So as we're wrapping up, as you know, the the last question on the podcast is always the same. Mm. The question I have for you is how do you cope (sighs) with grief and rage? I love this question. All right. I'm going to say, let me tackle rage first. I was reflecting on this question that, you know, my relationship with rage is really interesting. I grew up in a family where rage was very present. I grew up around uh, people who had no ability to regulate their emotions and rage was the one that came to the surface most rapidly. Mm. And um, to this day, I'm still a very fearful person around other people. If I feel like anything is going towards anger, I get very, very scared, very easily around rage. And yet mm. I had 
you know, as a young woman who was struggling to regulate myself, my God, I was capable of unbelievable rage when I would, when I would flip my lid, you know, I would, and I, I just remember when I would lose it sometimes like that and then seeing the fear in someone else's face, usually the face of someone I love. Most people wouldn't see that unless they're very close to me. And it was just so terrifying to me to be, to get there. And so over the years, a big part of that was, I think, what drew me to, um, I started studying macrobiotics to learn about food. I saw a book about how it helped food and mood. And I was like, what? You can use food to help regulate your moods? Like, help me. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I feel like I was constantly flip-flopping between grief and rage. As I mm-hmm. dealt with a lot of depression and hardcore grief when I was younger. But then, yeah, grief and rage were like this pendulum I was flipping on. So that led me to learning about caring for my body and then yoga and mindfulness practice. And that helped a lot, right? Just learning mm-hmm. how to getting tools for self-regulation. So rage is something I feel I can, I work with quite well now. Um, I still have, like, I, I have trouble being around intense rage, people who don't regulate their rage well, but even that I'm getting better at just being able to, to handle myself. Grief, I'm going to say, is still a really hard one for me. I still, um, I there's a part of me that loves, you know, you just put out your newsletter recently and we're speaking about like, I think you spoke about nostalgia, about bittersweetness. Like, yeah, I, bittersweetness I love, and poignance. Poignant, these are these are my emotions. Like, I love this. <laughs> I, like, I live for these feelings. Like, that's who I am at my core. Like, to me, mm-hmm. like, moments of beauty are always tinged with sadness. And, and also mm-hmm. that I can find there's a beauty in like feeling just your heart broken open. So that's fine. But when it comes to real grief, like, you know, some of the grief I've gone through in the last few years, uh, there's a part of it that's still, you know, I've done a lot of work around it, but it scares me because I do feel sometimes I can be overwhelmed by it to be swamped mm-hmm. by it. And so, um, turning towards it in these last few years and working with a really incredible somatic therapist mm-hmm. um, has been extremely helpful. And so my capacity for holding grief is increasing um, mm. and being able to really just be with it and and not be so afraid that it's going to toss me away. Yeah. Mm. So, so it's, it's, it's been a lifelong journey, I would say, being able to learn how to hold these states of, of rage and of grief in a, in a way that is helpful, in a way that is fruitful, and that is not suppressing and not denying and, and giving these things voice, but also, you know, staying within that place where I have the capacity to hold it and, and work with it skillfully. Mm. It sounds there. like you've come a really long way. I really want to read the memoir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can own that. Like, I... I, I in some ways, I think there were many people who, if they had met me in my youth, you know, I think of some of my friends' parents when I was younger, they probably thought, oh, God, that poor kid. They're, mm-hmm. they're not, what's going to happen to them, you know? Mm-hmm. I was a wreck. I was, I would just, mm-hmm. I, like, I was born to parents who had no ability to regulate themselves at all. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of challenges with mental health and addiction and chaos. And, and so I was, I was really a mess when I was younger. No, um, and I have come a long way. I can say that I can own that now. Um, and I, that's the thing about midlife is also recognizing like how much more there is to do. Like I, I feel right now when I spoke to doing a lot of behind the scenes work, a lot of that is like integrating those last deep pieces of my 
developmental trauma, my childhood trauma and mm-hmm. relational trauma. And it feels like, like the most important work of my life. And yet it's not, it doesn't lend itself to, again, this capitalist society where you're supposed to be productive. Mm-hmm. I'm not feeling mm-hmm. productive in an outer world way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I'm, I'm doing really deep, important work that I know is really important for me and everyone I'm in relationship with my lineage, but it's, it's hard work and it, and yeah, for anyone else who's doing this work, like just, I totally salute you because it requires pulling back from a lot of things and turning towards mm-hmm. what's difficult and what's painful, but it's so worth it. <laughs> mm. Wise words. Thank you so much for being on the show, Natalie. I'm so glad we finally did this. Yeah. And um, I am envisioning your memoir on the bookshelf. <laughs> oh. And so it is. Thank yeah. You. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you, Carmen. It's so great to sit with you today. I'm serious. I'm very excited for that memoir, especially after it's been seasoned. Uh, by a few years in her role as a somatic therapist, knowing what I know about Natalie's um, early life and what she's been through as a, a parent. I, yeah, it'll be fascinating, and I'm positive it will resonate with hundreds of thousands of women. You can follow Natalie on Instagram at natalierusso108, and I'll link to that and her website in the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. So listener shout out, hello Iceland representing this week. It's great to see you in my downloads, Big Surge. It's a real honor and a privilege. Thank you for being with me. I super appreciate it. Finally, remember that The Spirited Kitchen is available for pre-order online or from your local independent bookseller. Just ask them to bring it in. And then bring your receipt back to my website to receive your instant bonus downloads. Just go to the cookbook tab at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. Would you like me to know your thoughts on this episode's subject matter? I bet you would. I hope you do, actually. Feel free to leave me a voicemail or type me a note at castfeedback.com backslash podcast. That's castfeedback.com backslash podcast. Okay, let me actually spell it out. C-A-S-T-F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K.com backslash N-U-M-I-N-O-U S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. I'd love to hear your thoughts.